Hello, and welcome to HLAW's Legal History Podcast. This is your host, Siobhan Barco. Today, we will be talking with Martha S. Jones, the Society of Black Alumni Presidential Professor and Professor of History at Johns Hopkins University. She is a legal and cultural historian whose interests include the study of race, law, citizenship, slavery, and the rights of women. Dr. Jones, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. To start, could you tell us a bit about your background? The story of birthright citizens has more than one origin, like any kind of good project. It's the confluence of a lot of things that are rattling around in your head. But mostly, I think a a good book comes out of something that's really sort of gnawing at you. And for me, there were two things. One was what I perceived to be a sort of over-reliance, almost a preoccupation on an important Supreme Court decision from 1857 that I'm sure all your listeners will have heard of, Dred Scott. Dred Scott, while it's an important decision, was also one in which, one that was just trying to explain too much, particularly when it came to questions of race and citizenship. So I wondered if there wasn't another way to approach the question of race and citizenship, one that relied less on this singular, complex and interesting, but singular Supreme Court case, and one that more looked broadly at the experience of black Americans before the Civil War when it came to questions of rights, when it came to questions of citizenship. So that was sort of gnawing at me. Why do I have to listen to one more paper about Dred Scott? There must be something else we could be talking about. The other piece is that I had spent uh, 10 years back in the 1980s and 90s as a, a public interest litigator in New York City. And My work happened in the everyday courthouses of a city like New York, in family court, in housing court, in civil court, in Supreme Court, which in New York is a low-level trial court. So in trial courts, in places that most people know very little about, places that don't make the New York Times or the court reporters. But I knew from that experience that really important questions about rights were being worked out, worked through, being claimed in a local courthouse every day. And so I wondered what it would be like to, in essence, visit the local courthouse of the 19th century in the era of Dred Scott and to discover what black Americans were doing there. And it turned out, of course, that they were there and that there was a great deal that I hadn't known about that was worth spending some years discovering. Did your time working as a public interest lawyer influence how you wrote Birthright Citizens? Sure. One of the stories I tell at the beginning of Birthright Citizens is about being a lawyer who represented families in housing court, working in cases related to the conditions of um, housing, but also working to prevent evictions. And one of the things I was struck by was that just up against the facade of our housing court in Manhattan, there emerged an encampment of homeless people. And, you know, day to day, homelessness had emerged as a fact and a visible fact of life in New York City. And we might not notice that every time we encountered a homeless person or a group of homeless people. But there was something to me really provocative about homeless people taking shelter up against the housing court, right? That place that was supposed to be dispensing a kind of justice and keeping our city equitable when it came to something like shelter was being exposed for its incapacity really to mete out something like justice. And of course, lawyers have ways of attacking that sort of question. And I was one of those lawyers. But honestly, the answers I had were unsatisfying or at least incomplete. And I knew colleagues who worked on policy, worked in Albany in the state capitol, worked in Washington, 
did that kind of lobbying advocacy on the same questions. Again, important work, but not wholly satisfying in some way. And it was, in the end, history that helped me think about a place like the housing court. It turns out the housing court in the 21st century Manhattan sits where courts have stood for centuries now. And that that part of New York has always been a place for the kinds of the visibility, right? The place where the city's inequality has always been visible. In the 19th century, it was a place called the Five Points, and it was a notorious, you know, quote-unquote slum in 19th century America. Charles Dickens visits there and writes about the place. And there in the 21st century, it felt very much like Dickens's world when homeless people are making a home, ironically, in front of the housing court. So for me, the lesson was that as legal historians, we should use that which we encounter every day in our own worlds, in our own lives, like homeless people up against the housing court, and use history to interrogate that. So it's not a presentism. It's not to say that the 21st century explains the 19th or vice versa, that the 19th explains the 21st, but that we really can write histories that speak to and deeply inform our present if we're willing to stop and contemplate the things in our own time that are provocative, perhaps unjust, but also sort of inexplicable. And for me, history just has turned out to be a tool by which to understand the 21st century courthouse in new ways. From whose point of view are you telling the history of race and rights in the antebellum United States? I am an African-Americanist historian. That is my training. That is the, um, the literature and the culture of historical writing that I was trained in, and I still ground my work in that. People ask me, what does that mean to be an African-Americanist? Because many people write about Black Americans. What is special about being an African-Americanist? And in my view, being an African-Americanist means you never leave wholly the position, the point of view of Black Americans in the telling of history. So this is very much a history that tries to write about the history of race, rights, of citizenship, but from the vantage point of how those questions appeared to Black Americans, how they were experienced by Black Americans, and how Black Americans then take on those questions. Professor Elsa Barkley Brown gives us this notion of pivoting the center when she writes about writing Black women's history. And by that sort of metaphor, what she means is that we keep one foot right, rooted in the experience and perspective of Black Americans. But we pivot the center, as she says. We look around. And so I write about lawyers and judges and immigrant citizens in a city like Baltimore alongside the African-Americans who are the center of my story. So it's to say it's not a, an approach that might be misunderstood as sort of having blinders on, but it is to say that every history has a vantage point, um, has a center, a perspective from which it's written. And in my case, and part of what's new for many readers, I think, about birthright citizens is to look at these questions expressly from the perspective of Black Americans. I think the other thing for my field of African American history is to recognize that we are a field as has always been true, or maybe to remember, that we have the capacity to write many kinds of histories of the United States from the perspective of Black American citizenship being one of the many sorts of questions. So many people have written the history of citizenship in the 19th century from other sorts of vantage point, that of treatise writers, that of jurists, that of lawyers. And mine is just a new contribution, I hope, to that kind of constellation of approaches. What are the three perspectives from which legal historians have examined race and citizenship? How does your work fit into the historiography? 
Sure. So I've mentioned Dred Scott, and we might say there is the Dred Scott School of Race and Citizenship, and it is a cottage industry. It is booming. So many legal historians have approached this question through very important probing and ambitious examinations of Dred Scott, of the decision itself, the dissents, what happens in the Supreme Court. But we've also have an excellent now record of the lawyers, the judges involved, of the Scott family itself, of the cases, Kelly Kennington's new work and Twitty's new work that looks at the many, many freedom suits in the St. Louis courthouse alongside Dred Scott. So there is one approach to this question, and it has been very much through the study, ambitious and far-reaching, of Dred Scott. A second thread has been to read legal treatises, and my former colleague at the University of Michigan, Bill Novak, very importantly surveyed the question of citizenship generally in this period by reading the treatise literature. And the treatise literature is curiously, in Novak's reading of it, is curiously silent about citizenship. Novak concludes that citizenship probably wasn't a an important question in the antebellum era. That is to say, treatise writers don't spend a lot of thought or ink on those questions. And further, Novak concludes that to the degree that citizenship exists or the citizen exists as a category, there are no particular rights that attach to citizenship. Bill is a great colleague and mentor to me, so I can say that I disagree. Um, But I disagree in part because, as I just mentioned, because when you take the perspective of Black Americans and you begin to ask this question from their point of view, you discover that indeed citizenship is an important, hotly debated, nearly ever-present question throughout the antebellum period, that there is very little that we might think of as consensus on that question, that some of the best legal minds of the period approach it, are intimidated, repelled, and fumble when they attempt to resolve it. And so for me, I'm here to say two things, right? One is Dred Scott terrific, but there's a great deal more, right, to learn about the questions around race and rights in this period. And we can discover that by reading everything from the records of Congress to high court opinions to treatise literature, etc. And that citizenship, it turns out, actually is a central question in the antebellum period. And it is one being generated by the activism, by the claims making, by the insistence of former slaves that they are also members of the body politic. What sources did you draw upon to write Birthright Citizens? Great question. I start in a place that's really inspired by the work of people like Laura Edwards, Ariella Gross, um, Dylan Pennyroth, what we sometimes call uh, cultural legal historians who have mined the records of local courthouses. So I begin there um, in the city of Baltimore, The records of the Baltimore City Courthouse have been well preserved and maintained by the state archives. That was a great good fortune in my case. And I really began just by sifting through docket books, opening up case files the way, you know, my kind of legal history loves, right? Case files have never been opened since the 19th century, and there are thousands upon thousands of them. So I begin with those kinds of quotidian materials that are survive from the day-to-day workings of the courthouse. But it's just a beginning. And before I'm done, I'm reading everything from the Congressional Globe to the manuscript records of the Maryland Court of Appeals, which is the High Court of Maryland. I am working with the personal papers of jurists and legal thinkers like William Wirt and Roger Tawney. I'm certainly reading the commentaries, the treatises, the other, the intellectual production of legal thinkers in this period. And 
trying to, from all that, draw a new picture. Very important in the research turns out to be the record of what we call the colored conventions. And this is a a parallel or a shadow convention movement run by African Americans from 1830 forward as they are excluded from the political parties, as they are excluded from Congress and state legislatures, African American men and a few women convene nationally, statewide, locally, across the antebellum period to debate the issues of the day, to develop political strategies. Those records are now digitized by something called the Colored Conventions Project at the University of Delaware, and I benefited greatly from those materials because it really was a window into the intellectual lives of the people I was writing about. Why did you set this book in Baltimore? What aspects of Baltimore's story are unique, and what aspects have broader applications? So I mentioned the archives, and that's not unimportant in a project like this. And Baltimore had these wonderful and very extensive archives. But archives aren't enough. I was interested in a place where I could see in detail and in slow motion what the process of that transformation from slavery to freedom looked like around questions of citizenship and rights. And because Baltimore has the largest free African-American community in the United States before the Civil War, because Baltimore is a slave state with a free city in essence, because Baltimore was a port city, which meant it had a cosmopolitan character even for Black Americans, and because some of the era's most remembered legal thinkers like Roger Taney and William Wirt make their home there, felt like it had all the ingredients for the kinds of stories I wanted to tell. So I wanted to know about those 25,000 free African Americans in Baltimore and how they were grappling a day-to-day way with questions of rights, questions of belonging. And I wanted to know in a grounded sort of quotidian way what people like Wirt and Tawny and others knew because Baltimore was their home, right? They did not live in New York or Philadelphia or Richmond or Charleston. They lived in a particular place where the kinds of questions right, that are at the heart of Dred Scott, for example, um, are also part of the everyday fabric. So all of these things brought me to Baltimore and I'll mention one other thing, because I think it's of interest to people as you think about approaching and writing your own histories. There was a wonderful and very rich and well-developed social history and political history of Baltimore that had already been written. So most recently, Seth Rockman's important work, Scraping By, but a really long tradition of historical writing about Baltimore, which meant for a legal historian, it wasn't necessary to... Um, reinvent or recreate a vision of the political and social fabric of the city, I could lean on and build on existing work in a way that made what I wanted to then do possible. What pressures catalyzed the ideas that formed the arguments for birthright citizenship in Baltimore and anticipated the 14th Amendment? Here's a surprise for me in this book. I think I went in, perhaps as a lot of us would come to a question of rights and citizenship and race, I went in thinking a lot about political rights and in particular the vote. I thought a little bit about civil rights, like the right to testify, to sit on a jury. But it turns out, while all of those things are present in my story, the most important right, if you will, was one. I had really never read very much about, and I call it various things in the book because it doesn't have a it doesn't have a place, for example, in the Civil Rights Act of eighteen sixty six Some people refer it as the right of residence, some people refer to it as territorial citizenship or the right to place, the right to remain. but the number one challenge and the number one concern that emerges out of this community of former slaves in Baltimore 
is a concern that they are going to be removed or exiled or deported or colonized out of Baltimore, but out of the state and perhaps out of the country. Why? Well, there are two things, two forces that converge by the 1820s and that really lead them to believe this is a threat. One is a colonization movement, which has a history going back to the 18th century, but takes shape in a formal sense in the 18-teens. Colonizationists organized to persuade, cajole, gently pressure former slaves to leave the United States, perhaps for Liberia or Canada or the Caribbean. But colonizationists, and they are well-organized and relatively well-financed in a city like Baltimore, colonizationists are of the view that there is no future for black Americans in the United States, that the United States is a white man's country, and that black Americans' destiny is to make their way elsewhere where they can be full citizens. So that's a pressure. Couple that with what we call black laws. Now, now these are statutes coming out of the state legislature, oftentimes promoted by people who share the colonizationist view. These are laws that regulate the everyday lives of black Americans the work people do, the structures of families, the associational life, churches, fraternal orders, benevolent societies. Black laws impose curfews. Black laws restrict travel. And on their own terms, black laws might be objectionable enough. But what black Americans begin to understand is that the purpose of the Black Laws is, in a sense, the same as that of the colonization society. They're intended to make life so uncomfortable, so difficult, so onerous in its day-to-day -day terms that people will choose to, in essence, self-deport, right? that they will migrate to Canada or to Liberia or elsewhere. So these are real pressures. And, and so when they begin to debate these questions, Part of what they're trying to figure out is a legal strategy, is a, indeed a constitutional strategy that might permit them to resist these pressures. And citizenship appears, at least, to perhaps offer a kind of protection against this pressure to remove and becomes the focus of their advocacy over decades. They watch, for example, the example of Indian removal in the 1830s closely. And so while to us, you know, the wholesale removal of 50 or 75,000 former slaves you know, seems sort of like an exaggerated, almost hyperbolic proposal, Indian removal seems to suggest that with the will of the state or the federal government, even despite right, a debate about the status of Native people, that people can be wholesale removed and much to their despair and detriment. So this fear of being deported, removed, exiled, banished, is one that will fall away in large part with the Civil War and the 14th Amendment and citizenship but it is a very palpable one in the antebellum period. How did antebellum Americans perceive the relationship between rights and citizenship? Well, a good historian's answer is which Americans? <laughs> so, um, so let me say a little bit about how African Americans view this. They are reading the Constitution very carefully, and they see in the Constitution, for example, a privileges and immunities clause that they interpret as requiring a kind of equality between the citizens of the various states. And so what's important is that 
this is a period when there's lots of room for vernacular interpretation, for creative, and for inventing, in fact, what it is that citizenship is and what it means. So for the people I write about, they are, they are um, insistent that citizenship is not a hollow category, that citizenship, for example, ensures or guarantees a right to residence. But they are, in Baltimore, colleagues to former slaves and free black Americans from places like New York and Pennsylvania, where black Americans are voting and then losing the right to vote. And so those arguments begin to turn on this nascent notion that there's a connection between citizenship and the right to vote. And of course, this is in a period where for white Americans, for white men, voting is becoming widespread and available across class and across many lines of difference. So they're beginning to craft these kinds of ideas. Is the right to travel a right that attends citizenship? Well, by the 1840s, at least Roger Tawney believes that to be the case. And and in the passenger cases, Tawney will argue in his dissent that the right to travel is an essential partly because that is how one petitions the government in the 19th century. If one lives in Ohio, if one can't travel through the other states without restriction, one can never get to Washington, literally, to petition the government to to put forward a grievance or claim. So these are ideas that are being worked out in this period. They don't have the kind of constitutional fine point that we will come to associate with the post-Civil War period and certainly the 20th century, but it is a moment in which people are reaching, looking, and what we know is that this is a period during which the nation as a whole right, is being made and is defining itself. And so for me, it was exciting to discover that particularly on this one question, Black Americans are really, in a sense, the vanguard and really pushing the edge of what it might mean to be a citizen and to claim some kinds of guarantees. None of that is Black letter, as we say, in this period, but we recognize the ways in which the things that they do, from carrying guns to petitioning to protecting their property and their persons in court, to testifying, all the things they aspire to do to travel, even to use the writ of habeas corpus, that these are the kinds of rights, if you will, that will come to be associated with citizenship over time. Here, we're in a moment where those things are just beginning to emerge and work themselves out. How did those without access to formal legal training in antebellum America nonetheless study law? It's such an important question because I do think that some people come to this subject and imagine that Black Americans because many of them were excluded wholesale from education, certainly higher education, or assume that Black Americans, as they were, were barred from becoming members of the bar, that they were outside or marginal or without any sophisticated legal knowledge or acumen. And of course, it turns out not to be the case at all. And so it begins for me in some of the era's early African-American newspapers, a newspaper like Freedom's Journal, which begins publication in New York in 1827. And in its opening salvo, when it justifies itself, it proclaims that partly it is going to be a space for interrogating the Constitution, working out questions related to constitutional rights for Black Americans. So newspapers and African-American newspapers, the anti-slavery press, these are primers for African-Americans. And when we go back to read them, we discover that they are full of debate, interpretation, reporting that really permits one to develop an imperfect and certainly not as refined as it might be insight, but enough, right, to really debate those questions. The colored conventions I've mentioned are places in which delegates are appearing 
sharing their knowledge, debating their knowledge, reading together, reciting and paying homage to the Constitution, doing that close reading, another site for how one trains in law in essence. There are limits, and so part of what I learn are the ways in which then, just as we might today, if one has a thorny question, one finds a good lawyer. And so Black Americans also seek out some of the best legal minds of the day and pay the requisite fee and secure opinions about the questions they have related to the Constitution, related to rights, related to how race intersects or interferes with those things. So they are doing the things available to them, but the result is, I think, a point of view that is not the same, right? perhaps as one who attended law school or formally read law, which is the way so many lawyers were trained in this period. But it nonetheless allows for a sophisticated And it turns out a very forward-looking perspective on questions about citizenship. The last thing I'd say is that there are experiences with law in everyday life through which people are also learning about the local courthouse and about what they can expect, what they can extract, what kind of rights they might expect to secure in a local courthouse. So I was really interested, for example, in churches and the ways in which when African-American churches become embroiled in litigation, which they frequently did in this period, be it over mortgage holding and the property holding, or over questions about who controls the leadership and the governance of an institution, or even fights about what sort of music should be played that wind up in the local courthouse. But the point really is, is that the congregation as a whole participates in that litigation. The issues get debated in the congregation. The congregants show up in the courthouse when the cases are heard. And so the church becomes, I think, an essential site, it turns out, for the acquisition and the everyday kind of understanding about how a courthouse works, how law works, what can expect one can expect there. That comes, I think, from many people, many more people out of church culture. What were some of the ways antebellum Black Americans interacted with the law through newspapers? One of the vantage points that uh, a city like Baltimore really offers us is an appreciation for how African Americans, former slaves in the United States, are part of really a dynamic that is unfolding across the Americas, which is to say slavery is, if not ended, slavery is vying with freedom throughout the Americas in this period. And Baltimore is not a unique city in the sense that it has many more free people than it does enslaved people. It is not unlike Rio de Janeiro in Brazil or Havana in Cuba in this period. So African Americans, through their newspapers, have the ability to think critically and comparatively about their own status by learning about and appreciating the the fine points of how free people of color fare in a city like Rio or Havana, Veracruz in Mexico, and many other places. So the newspapers, again, are an imperfect but really important way for Baltimoreans to, I think, not only think critically, but to weigh their options. We talked about colonization. And through the newspapers, they will read about places like Haiti, right? the, the, the first independent black republic. And some will migrate to Haiti. And others will use Haiti as a touchstone for thinking about the kinds of claims they want to make. They will learn about Trinidad, where the British are now looking to attract Black workers in a post-emancipation context to Trinidad. Well, how do they learn about Trinidad? In part, through their own newspapers, Liberia, Canada. The newspapers are essential for this kind of comparative and critical thinking. 
Now, the, Baltimore has its uh, an important share of sailors, men who will actually visit these places um, and who will come back and report themselves about their experience. But I think just important is the way in which the press then makes those experiences and many, many others part of the ways in which Black Americans think about their position in a city that looks isolated and small there on the east coast of the United States, but is part of this really Atlantic network. Uh, So this is a big one, but could you give us a few examples of ways the individuals you discuss in your book use law as an instrument of change? Sure. (laughs) Well, that's a whole book, isn't it? Um, I think. But let me try... Let me try just two examples, one perhaps small and, and one perhaps bigger. And they both are examples from the life of a man named George Hackett. Hackett is a regular character, a figure in this book. I was very fortunate to discover him in so many of the scenes that I was interested in. Hackett is, has been a sailor aboard the USS Constitution and has traveled to many of these ports like Havana and Rio de Janeiro and I think learned uh, firsthand some of how free people of color fare in those places. But he comes back to Baltimore and makes his home there. And the first time I discover him in the courthouse records after his return from sea is in a very everyday kind of scene. He's gotten into some kind of some kind of dust up with another man, a white man, on the streets of Baltimore. We've no idea what happened, but you can imagine. They bumped into each other or one offended the other, but they get into a scuffle. But what's important about that is not the scuffle, that's everyday life in Baltimore. What's important is what Hackett does. And what he does is go into the local courthouse and swear out a complaint against this white man who he claims to have assaulted him. Well, already he's got our attention because it's not clear from our general perceptions, I think, that an African-American could even swear out a complaint against a white person in this period. But he does. And then he goes further because he testifies against this man and he wins the case. And he even wins a dollar, which in those days was a pretty typical fine for a relatively minor offense. Well, this tells us something about Hackett, but it also tells us about the ways in which African Americans are testing legal culture. Can I swear out a complaint? Can I testify against the interest of a white man when state law says I cannot? And can I win in this courthouse? And it turns out you can. So it's a small example, but it's one that really, I think, illustrates the way in which Hackett is testing the limits. Now let's fast forward nearly 20 years, and it's 1859, and the Maryland State Legislature is contemplating a new set of black laws. Here, the most draconian black laws the state has ever contemplated they would, or they had proposed to require all free African Americans to either be re-enslaved, and I put that in quotes because many of them have never been slaves, but to be enslaved or to leave the state. There are proposals that they be wholesale forcibly removed. And Hackett now is in a position to take the kinds of sophistication, the kind of savvy that he's acquired in the conventions, in the newspapers, in the everyday courthouse. And he does two things. One, he circulates a petition, something he's done before in the context of church litigation. And he will secure the signatures, not only of black, but of white Baltimoreans in opposition to this legislation. Then he will go to state capitol and do something he'd never done before, at least as far as I can tell. And he will, in essence, show up to petition and to lobby the state legislature and confronts the proponent of this bill, Curtis Jacobs, who comes from the part of the committee on, um, I guess it's called the Committee on Negroes in the state legislature. And Jacobs is the proponent, and he will confront Jacobs 
and debate him. And ultimately, Hackett will be part of a successful coalition that defeats this legislation. But all of that in my story comes out of the same impetus, right? People who are learning about the possibilities and the limits of law, testing it, and wringing out of law, even in a place like Maryland, a great deal more, I think, than we imagine possible, especially when we contrast it to Roger Tawney's rhetoric in Dred Scott, which had told us, right, Black people have no rights, right, that whites are bound to respect. Well, that's not quite true for Hackett in that everyday way, in the assault case. And then it turns out in the state legislature where he really could be an agent of defeating the kind of legislation that would have attempted, would have rendered him a person without rights. He's able actually to defeat that legislation. Could you explain the concept of rights secured through performance? Mm. I was very inspired and informed by Ariella's wrote Gross's work on the performance of race, in particular the performance of whiteness. In her book, Litigating, uh, her book, um, What Blood Won't Tell, she's an article, Litigating Whiteness. The book is What Blood Won't Tell. And in that, Gross really makes clear that race is an idea and that even in courtrooms, race is not a fact to be discovered. Race is a conclusion that judges arrive at out of a constellation of facts, including how people live, how they carry themselves. So, for example, if one worships in white church, if one uh, socializes with white people, if one is married to a white person, if one is regarded in one's community as a white person, even if there is evidence, if you will, of you know something as specious but alive in the 19th century as black blood, one can be regarded by law as white. So this very nuanced reading was important for me in understanding the stakes in what black Americans were doing in the local part house when they came to get guns or they brought a writ of habeas corpus. Yes, there were real material things at stake in those proceedings, but it was also an opportunity to carry oneself and to engage in the rituals that leads one to look like a person with rights, even as a high court might say otherwise. So I spend time trying to understand that part of what's happening as a courthouse is the the literal working out of interests and entitlements, you know, the imposition of fines or the you know, the relegation of bodies to one costume, all that is happening, that material stuff is happening. But at the same time, people are standing up and demonstrating, performing who they are. This is not easy for Black Americans in a place like the Baltimore City Courthouse because they are indeed subject to ridicule, open ridicule in the courtroom. Um, But I think that makes what they do all the more remarkable because there is a dignity claim, but there is also a claim to the courthouse itself as um, their space, as well as the space of others. And if and if they were only in that courthouse being, if you will, denigrated and most literally oppressed, as they certainly are in criminal proceedings, um, as they certainly are as fugitive slaves, if that's all that was happening, we might draw a different conclusion. But when we see them securing gun licenses and travel permits, coming out of that courthouse successfully, having forced a a white person to account for themselves by way of a writ of habeas corpus, when we see those things, we think that's complicated in a city like Baltimore when people seem to, and we have white commentators who say as much, who say, African-Americans in our midst are carrying themselves as if they have rights. And 
Indeed, they are. And that's part of what's happening in the local courthouse. What are some of the things that happened when Black Baltimoreans interacted with local courthouses? So one of the most important scenes for me comes out of the city criminal court. I guess. No, it's a circuit court. And there's a lot going on in a trial court. And we're very lucky to have the docket books, and we really have a day-to-day, minute-by-minute sort of accounting of what's happening in those courtrooms. But here's a scene. Baltimore is a city of immigrants, Irish and German immigrants. And in November, before Election Day, immigrants who aspire to vote, white men, come into the local courthouse to renounce their allegiances and express their intent to naturalize as citizens. And if they do so, they are going to be permitted to vote on Election Day. So you have German and Irish immigrants who are coming into the courthouse, standing up in front of a judge and renouncing their allegiances in Europe and expressing their intent to naturalize as citizens. It's quite a a powerful and moving, if you will, scene um, in a quotidian way of what citizenship is and how it happens. Well, that's fascinating, but more fascinating for me is that in the same scene, in the same afternoon, you have African-American men in the courthouse. Well, what are they doing? Well, they cannot stand up and renounce allegiances and declare their intent to naturalize. The Naturalization Act of 1790 makes them ineligible for naturalization. Um, But they are doing something else that I think is arguably as powerful, is that they are getting gun permits. And so they're standing up and presenting themselves to the court, and they are carrying with them applications signed by respectable, quote-unquote, respectable white persons who support their applications. And despite all of the political rhetoric around that is fearful and concerned and wants to restrict African-American men's access to guns, for example, they stand up in the same courtroom and they secure that right to carry a gun, those permits. And it's that kind of moment that I think helps us contextualize what's happening and what a powerful place that local courtroom is. Um, There's a lot more going on related to rights than we realize, including citizenship, but that in their own way, Black men are standing up and making a claim for their capacities, their standing, and they're doing so with white allies. So I become very interested in the white allies because many of these kinds of black law requirements around permits and licenses require white allies. And so it also is letting us glimpse how sophisticated these guys are. They know who to go to and how to secure white allies and to have white men, in essence, lend their reputations to free black men who then come away, in this example, with gun permits. And so this is, to me, a great example of precisely what the performance quality is. But it it also means you have a gun permit and you can carry your your rifle um, or your, your rifle, your firearm, for another year in the city of Baltimore. How did Baltimore's men and women sometimes invert the intention of the Black Laws? So I'll talk a little bit about travel permits, because this is another black law requirement. Former slaves who want to leave the state temporarily and return are required to come into the local courthouse by law and secure a travel permit. And that's the permit that permits them to re-enter. Otherwise, they're subject to fines, to re-enslavement when they re-enter the state of And these were permits that were intended to restrict and confine and make life in Baltimore more difficult, right? Life in Maryland more difficult for former slaves, to make it uncomfortable. But two things happen. Quick anecdotes. One is there's a moment when I mentioned Trinidad officials from Trinidad come to Baltimore trying to encourage black Americans to emigrate to Trinidad. Um, And they're promised many things, including rights, 
citizenship and rights. And many of them go. And I'm able to chronicle them because we find their find these documents in the courthouse records. But they don't just go. Before they go, by family by family by family, hundreds of them come into the courthouse and get these travel permits because they're not sure it's going to work out in Trinidad. And they are going to, in essence, you know, hedge their bets by ensuring that should Trinidad not pan out in the way it's promised, they can come back. And this is exactly this is exactly not what these laws are intended to do. These laws are intended to exclude people, to encourage people to go, to prevent them from coming back. But African Americans understand the system and what that piece of paper can do for them. So this is an example, I think, of a kind of inversion of the intent of the legislature's intent, which is to make life more difficult, it turns out that the, that the permits give people a kind of option. And indeed, people will come back to Maryland, finding Trinidad not to be the paradise that it was intended to be. The other thing about travel permits is that they are remarkably under-enforced, so that even when people are found to have traveled without a permit and come back into the state, I find the local courts really um, kind of engaged in a kind of, you know, complicated gymnastics and twisted reasoning, all of which aims to um, avoid the, the full force of the law in the lives of African Americans who do travel. And so that to me is curious also, that despite these permit requirements, in the few cases we have where African Americans are prosecuted for not having permits, in the end, the courts don't enforce them. And so there's something about the ways in which I think Black permit holders and Black travel is establishing customs or norms that the court finds compelling such that we don't find a lot of people being subject to the very draconian kinds of sanctions like heavy fines, like re-enslavement, you know, sale into slavery that the court might have meted out. And instead, people are ultimately exonerated and permitted to return to their regular lives. What impact did Dred Scott versus Sanford have in Baltimore? It had no impact in Baltimore. That's probably the most shocking thing I'll say in this entire interview, is that it really doesn't. Why? Two things. Most of the action, if you will, legal action around race and rights is happening in state courts and not in federal courts during this period. And as a consequence, Dred Scott, as we know, doesn't reach to the question of state citizenship. It doesn't reach to the question of rights in state court. It only extends to the federal courts. And so we can look at the records of the local courthouse in a city like Baltimore and observe that nothing really seems to change. People come in, they continue to file for bankruptcy and file writs of habeas corpus and get their travel permits. There really isn't a change. Now, that's interesting in part because, of course, Baltimore probably as much as any locale in the country, is watching Dred Scott, in part because there are so many former slaves in the city, but also because Roger Twenty is a Baltimorean, and he's much admired, certainly in the white legal establishment there, in the white political establishment. So there's a lot of anticipation. So despite all that, it really doesn't influence what happens in the local courthouse. Now, not for lack of trying, because the next year, the Maryland State Court of Appeals will hear a case called Hughes v. Jackson. And in Hughes v. Jackson, it will be argued that Jackson, who has brought a suit against Hughes, who happens to also be a free African-American man, the argument will be that Jackson has no standing in the state courts of Maryland. The suit should be dismissed because Jackson is an African-American, and while Dred Scott doesn't formally apply in the state court, the urging is that, as a cultural legal logic, right, 
Maryland's Court of Appeals should import this general proposition, right, and clarify that Black Americans right, have no rights that white Marylanders are bound to respect, hence are not permitted to bring suit in the state courts. It's a pretty, that is the logic of Dred Scott. And what happens is remarkable because, in fact, the high court in Maryland says no, says no, not because it is a forward-looking, racially egalitarian, you know, pro-civil rights, um, anti-racist institution, but because closer to the ground, the Court of Appeals in Maryland is cognizant that there are 75, 80,000 free African Americans in the state that these are folks who are workers and are contributing to the state's overall prosperity, and that if you exclude them from the courthouse, you, in essence, in one fell swoop, create 75 or 80,000 outlaws in the state of Maryland, which is just impossible in the court's mind. And the court says, as long as these folks are in our midst, and maybe they won't be in our midst forever, right, because this is a pro-colonization court. But as long as they are here, they have basic rights, which means the right to sue and be sued to protect their wages, their person, their property. How can we expect people to labor if they can't then protect the fruits of their labor? So it's a limited decision. It doesn't go to the question of citizenship that is at the heart of Dred Scott, but it does resist that logic that says somehow Black Americans have no rights. Tawny has gone too far for the legal thinkers in his home state who want to keep Black Americans subordinate, but a part of legal culture as, you know, we might say a means of social control. But also, of course, we know Black Americans are going to use that opening to make more of it than merely their kind of subordination. How do the questions about rights and citizenship raised during Reconstruction connect to the issues Black Baltimoreans confronted from 1820 to 1860? It would be a mistake, as much as I've said, it would be a mistake to imagine that a place like Baltimore is simply a place of opportunity for Black Americans before the Civil War, because it is not. And beyond even the pressures of colonization or black laws, racism, violence, all make Baltimore a very tough place for people to make their way. And even as there are, and I emphasize in this book, the possibilities in the local courthouse, when we look closely at many of the kinds of cases I look at, there is many disappointments at the end of the day, as there are victories. And that is to say, even with a modest set of rights, rights don't guarantee people justice. So it's a very constrained world that people are operating in. And their possibilities for asserting and claiming rights are just absolutely limited. Well, after the Civil War, one of my questions was, what happens to these people? And what do they do when the terrain changes? And luckily, I'm able to follow many of them into the post-war period, like George Hackett, and discover what I would argue is the full scope of their aspirations. Right. So if you don't really think you know what a travel permit meant to someone before the war, if you think maybe it just meant he could hunt, right, or he could defend his home under exigent circumstances. If you think it didn't have a symbolic value, watch a guy like Hackett or Nathan Bowers, who after the war are parading in the streets of Baltimore as part of a black-led conceived militia, something they had been absolutely forbidden from doing before the war. And I think you begin to see the full scope of what it meant to, for example, secure a gun permit. It had 
certainly, you know, practical value, but it also had the symbolic value. And when black men parade in the streets in Baltimore, um, it is power. It is a powerful kind of claim for a new citizenship, um, and it is a provocative one. It meets with opposition, so it's not a simple one. But the point is that in Reconstruction, we see people sort of full-blown their aspirations. I write about parents who are using the writ of habeas corpus before the Civil War to challenge apprenticeship contract holders, indenture holders. Black children are, because of poverty, most often being indentured to whites in Baltimore before the war. And parents use the writ of habeas corpus to hold contract holders accountable for abuse and other violations of the contracts. They do only modestly well, but they use that writ effectively, at least to the degree that they can haul white men into court and get them before a judge and force them to account for the whereabouts or the treatment of children. Well, that continues after the war, but with a new twist, because now, after Maryland abolishes slavery, those parents are going to argue not simply that white indenture contract holders should be brought into court to account, they argue that the apprenticeship laws are unconstitutional because they draw distinctions between the treatment of black and white children. And guess what? After the war, they win on that point. And so, again, what is the scope of their aspirations? What are they trying to do in 1856, when they bring those habeas corpus petitions, yes, they're trying to get control of their children, but they are challenging, right, the the deep premise of those laws, which has always regarded black children more harshly than white children. And now, enduring Reconstruction, they have a different kind of footing, a different kind of constitutional framework, and they are able to successfully not only bring those petitions, but actually have the laws that undergird the contracts declared unconstitutional. And I would say this has always been an element of their aspirations, not one that they really had enough footing to pull off in the antebellum period. But when they get the chance, they do. Is there a relationship between finding justice in the present and remembering the past? My former colleague, uh, historian Ty Miles, offered me a kind of formulation that I, I have come to appreciate and subscribe to. And what Miles says is that the writing of history itself can be an act of justice. That is to say, people who have been, whose lives have been overlooked distorted, misrepresented, shrouded in myth, to write their histories in the way that we do is itself a kind of justice. It is, you know, a breaking of silence, a setting aside of dispelling of myth. And we could think about birthright citizens in that way, that no historian can reach back to the 1850s and do the kind of justice. I'm not sure that it's our business to even engage in that kind of magical time travel thinking. But we can understand that there is a measure of justice for people like George Hackett in writing his history and making it part of our national record, um, along with many other dimensions of our history that are now well told. So that's one piece. I don't, on the other hand, think that any history is a blueprint or a map or the answer to the 21st century. How could it be? There's too much has changed, too much is different. But in talking about this book, finishing it, and then getting a chance to speak with people about it, There are some powerful resonances, I think, between the example of citizenship, how as a nation we fumble and fudge and really get wrong the status of former slaves for many decades until Civil War and the 14th Amendment. There is a kind of cautionary tale, I think, in that about two things. You know, one is that 
citizenship is a central concept in this country for nearly all our history, that there's hardly a moment when um, it hasn't been a contested idea. And that is certainly true in 2018, as it was in 1868. And so it's important, I think, out of this story to recognize that there's nothing aberrant about people knocking at the door of the nation, wanting to get in, wanting to be a part. Yes, to enjoy the benefits, but also to make their contributions. That's what many and most of the people in my story want in this period. And and that, we might say, is an essential uh, dynamic of democracy. And so when it happens in 2018, we shouldn't be surprised that people, some people want in, because that has always been true for their political lives, for their social and economic lives, but even for their familial lives. In citizenship, it can be important, a powerful tool for people, for communities. So there is that. And then there is this problem of what do we do when we get it wrong and how do we respond? And in that way, I think this is a dark tale because, in fact, the dilemma, the problem that former slaves face only gets resolved by way of civil war, by way of a revolution, literal and constitutional. And certainly we could do better than that in the 21st century, couldn't we? Which is to say, to recognize that there are people who are outside the formal boundaries of belonging, as um, Barbara Welke would put it, or outside those formal boundaries of belonging, and yet have, by virtue of their labor, by virtue of their institution building, by virtue of their um, contribution to families and communities, crafted a kind of citizenship that warrants recognition, right? A citizenship waiting to be recognized. And that even birthright citizenship, which is sort of where this book ends, right, with former slaves becoming citizens by way of the 14th Amendment, even birthright citizenship, a 19th century remedy, is not a remedy for the challenges in front of us and the humanitarian crisis in front of us in the 21st century. It was creative and important thinking on the part of Black Americans and later by many others in Congress that resolves that dilemma to some degree. We don't yet, I think, know what that looks like in our own time. Well, I really want to thank you for being on the show today. Sure. Thanks very much for having me.